This is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. The Seraphic Saturday Podcast is produced by Alexis Ame and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. My name is Thomas McCarger, and this is a Seraphic Fire Media Production. Hello, and welcome to the Seraphic Saturday podcast. My name is Patrick Quigley, and I'll be your host today on our show discussing aspects of performing Baroque vocal and instrumental music. Later in the show, soprano Nola Richardson talks to Josh Cohen about the unique qualities of the Baroque trumpet. But first, all of us who work on the podcast are thrilled to have one of the reigning stars of the historical performance movement in the studio today. Joining us now on the Seraphic Fire Saturday podcast is the premier interpreter of English language song and a pioneer of the early music movement, Dame Emma Kirkby. Her vast discography has inspired an entire generation of performers, and everyone at Seraphic Fire is brimming with excitement at her joining us on today's program. Dame Emma, welcome to the Seraphic Saturday podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored. I think many of our listeners will know your work quite well. But for those who don't, we're going to play a few favorites from your discography. Let's start with the 1982 Purcell Songs and Airs with Anthony Rooney and Christopher Hogwood on the Loiseau Lear label. This is the final track from that recording, Evening Hymn.
That was Purcell's Evening Hymn featuring today's guest on the podcast, the spectacular Dame Emma Kirkby with collaborators Anthony Ruley and Christopher Hogwood. Dame Emma, I just want to say as a great fan of yours for a long time that every moment on this Purcell disc is sublime. You and your collaborators clearly have a very passionate love for Purcell's music. Can you think back to when was the first time you encountered the music of Purcell and how did it speak to you when you first encountered it? It would have been when I was a student singing in the Schola Cantorum of Oxford. And the Schola was a little bit bigger than your choir I've seen. That's about 18 mm-hmm. people, isn't it? And I think the Schola was about 35, predominantly undergraduates. But I remember going to sing personal anthems in Bath Festival with London Orchestra, the Academy of St. Martin of the Fields and so on. And then I got really much more deeply involved in it once I did start my singing career, which was effectively from 75, really. And it was through my experience, really, with um, the Consult of Music, singing Dowland and Gibbons and so on. And Peter was also at the same time working with Christopher Hogwood and the Academy of Ancient Music. So Peter said to Christopher, I think you should hear this soprano. And that's how it happened. In your opinion, what is it about Purcell's relationship with the English language that makes his settings so arresting? I think it's the freedom. It really is the speech-like quality, the improvisatory feel of it all. I mean, he can write a measured four-square tune with the best of them, but actually when he's addressing a text that really interests him, he does the opposite. And he takes you very quickly into other areas. And it's just thrilling. And and the way to cope with it is just to live with the words. And then you you see his thinking. You've sung many of the songs and airs, but you also participated in a seminal recording of Dido and Aeneas, where you sang Dido's trusty sidekick, Belinda. Can you talk a little bit about interpreting Belinda? How did you make it part of your being in the way that you did? Well, it's an interesting question because it is almost the hardest thing to sing in the whole opera. (laughs) Dido's a wonderful role and has a lot to challenge anybody. But in terms of sheer vocal technique, it's a much simpler thing. The Belinda is really, really difficult. And I'd forgotten I'd done it myself, actually. (laughs) I listened back to it and thought, oh, yeah, that's all right. But no, it's not easy at all. Again, it's, it's got that... That freedom, that, that absolute characterised, you really feel that this is a different person from all the others. That's, that's fun. Both of the personal recordings that we talked about come relatively early in your career. Give us an idea of what it was like coming of age during sort of the real naissance of the early music movement in England at the time. It must have been an incredibly exciting time. Well, it was, and I was just extraordinarily lucky because I wasn't an expert. I wasn't a musicologist. I was just someone who loved words. Mm -hmm. And I feel that you can keep that going a long time with with a simple sound because so often the composers know what they're doing and they balance you beautifully. And sopranos are very rarely expected to belt or make very loud noises in that period. Uh, It's all beautifully balanced around them. But I would also say, this is getting more and more of an obsession with me, really, that 
what matters terribly is where you do it. You have to have good acoustics. Uh, and the big difference, I think, now when there are some fantastic young singers. I mean, it's, I'm very excited how many incredibly good ones there are. But the, they all feel, or most of them feel, they have to be able to do everything. And some of them really do manage all these different styles incredibly well. But when it comes to the operatic style, if they're going through music college, nine times out of ten, they will be required to be loud enough to balance that piano. And the piano is a very successful instrument, but it's not one any of these composers knew anything about or expected to hear at all. I long for the time when every conservatoire has a handful of lutes as well as lovely keyboards. They've started harpsichords and forte pianos and so on. But the lute is such a special thing to sing with. And I, I would love to see every singer have the chance to sing with the lute. But the second thing I would love is for every singer to have the chance to sing in really good acoustics. Because when you're in those acoustics, that automatic vibrato on the high notes that you do in dead acoustics in order to make it beautiful isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. And if it's a high note, you just go, bah, or whatever, and the acoustics will come and help you, and it'll sound beautiful. When you come to all the polyphony and the, the amazing dissonances you have to create, with the, the way you have to clash with another voice, all those things just get destroyed if you're not singing, singing with straight tone. So, and in those kind acoustics, straight tone, tone sounds beautiful, as indeed it clearly did in your concert in Wall Street. I mean, fantastic. You, you could sing so straight and yet be so rich. And I, I, just, I just want every young singer to know that that's available. Yes. There are many ways to sing. Let's move on to another, I think, industry-changing recording, which is your recording of the Pergolesi Stabat Mater with James Bauman and the Academy of Ancient Music led by Christopher Hogwood on DECA.
That was Emma Kirkby with the Academy of Ancient Music performing the sixth movement of Pergolesi's Stabat Mater, Vidit Sum. Both the solo singing and the ensemble work is ravishing in that disc. Can you talk about perhaps what it was like recording the Pergolesi Stabat Mater and what the reception might have been like afterward? Because it, you must have been just sort of treated like a rock star at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really remember that, but the track you played is wonderfully effective because it's so simple. It, it's so, it's pared down to the absolute minimum, isn't it? Especially by the end. Yeah. You're, you're whispering practically and it, it's so naked it has to be. And I suppose that is something that I always did instinctively and wasn't wasn't frightened to do I didn't know any better anyway but it, it once you put a halo of strings around it it's mm. it's incredible and I think this is the point really that sometimes singers think they we we sometimes think that we individually have to be responsible for a beautiful sound and we sort of do but the beauty I'm, I'm if I'm coaching people I've quite often try and discourage people from worrying too much about how they sound because when we're working together on something, the other people aren't there. It's just a singer and their part, possibly someone playing continual, possibly not. The strings aren't there. The wind instrument isn't there for a bakari, whatever it is. There's so many other ingredients. If you do Dido's Lament, I love it if I'm coaching that, if I can get a gamba as well. If you can have the string bass playing at the same time, it's so it, it's so much easier to sing then because you've got companionship and you've got the, you've got the incredible effect of the two lines. And then, of course, later again, you've got a halo of strings later on. All those things you have to imagine when you're practicing on your own. And I think if you're brave, you just say, well, I'm going to deliver this um, as something that's that's very intense and very important, but I'm not going to worry how it sounds in a sense. I'm just going to speak it and then see what happens when everyone else gets there. So I, I do say to singers, Purcell, in this case, is the cook, and you're one of the ingredients. And the other ingredients are extremely important. The ground bass, the strings, the continuo, the, the situation... The, where you've got to in the story, all those things, they all combine to make it a special moment. And it's not your sole responsibility. So I think that's why singers do get freaked out by, by pieces like that, because there's such a heritage now. So many astonishing people have sung it, each one in their own way, but all amazing. And in fact, um, Catherine Bott did say when she was about to do Dido for, for this, for Decca, she went to see Diane Forlano who said, well, the first thing you've got to do is get all those other singers off your shoulders. <laughs> Just forget about them. It's, 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 sometimes it's a burden mm. when you know too much what other people have done. And of course, now with YouTube, <laughs> young singers, I think it's even harder. Frankly, I was terribly lucky that an awful lot of what I did was not covered in, in any similar way by other people. It's sort of virgin territory. Mm. Uh, that was extraordinary good luck. But I think in a way you've got you've got to have the nerve to think every time you sing something, it is virgin territory. It's it's your response you've got to find and just do not worry about all the other things you heard that inspired you. Because when you when you thought somebody's performance was exquisite, it was, absolutely. But what they did was about one fifth of it. 
not the whole thing. So let's listen to one more track, this time featuring a work of Vivaldi. This is the first movement of Vivaldi's cantata for solo soprano, Nulla in Mundo Pax Sincera, recorded with the Academy of Ancient Music under the direction of Christopher Hogwood on the Loiseau label.
That was the first movement of Vivaldi's cantata for solo soprano, performed by our guest, Dame Emma Kirkby, with the Academy of Ancient Music, left by Christopher Hogwood. Your collaborator on all of the recordings that we've just heard is the late, great Sir Christopher Hogwood, who passed away in Mm -hmm. 2014. But his influence through recordings and advocacy is still strongly felt by all of those of, of us who work in historical music. Can you give us some idea what it was like to work with Sir Christopher? Oh, it was great. It really was. He loved to share ideas. And he, he was never so happy as when he was presenting people mm-hmm. with what he'd found out with the facts. You know, well, you might find, if you look at this ornament here, you know, that you'll find that there's, there's, there's a, quite a good idea over here. And, and yes, and have you considered that... Uh, with that word, you know, there might have been a way of pronouncing it. He was a natural scholar. I benefited hugely, I think, from his, his guidance in all sorts of ways. But he just knew so much. And when necessary, he would produce some nugget of information that, that would clarify things. You have not only been at the forefront of historical music performance, but you've spent a great deal of time coaching and training other performers in this style. What are some of the things that you try to communicate with a young musician who's beginning their adventure in historical music performance? Well, it's words. I'm a one-trick pony. I love my consonants. (laughs) I had a fantastic teacher, Jessica Cash. I mean, she was perfect for me. And right from the beginning, she said, you've got to think of the consonants. They are not your enemies. They are your friends. (laughs) (laughs) And so many things that I say to people now, they all came from her, really. How do you deal with a difficult high note? You put the consonant on it. You don't swallow Mm -hmm. it. You actually get that consonant. And I'm, I'm getting more and more obsessive about persuading people that Jesse used to say, what is not properly closed will not open properly. So you have to close enough to be able to open. We all want to do magic legato, like the car, the beautiful car, the Rolls-Royce or the Bentley or whatever, that glides along with seemingly nothing happening. And Jessie says, yes, what is propelling that car? A series of short explosions. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. I mean, the consonants are vital. And and the more emotional you you are on them, the more naturally that happens, I think. I just have one final question, which is more sort of a big picture question. As of late, historical music is becoming more a part of the modern concert hall, but there's still sort of a lingering fear amongst those players and singers who are not specialists that they might do something wrong. What would you say to someone who is perhaps not trained as a specialist, but, but loves this music and would like to perform more of it on their instrument that they know just as it is? I would say that the handbooks were just full of requirements that instrumentalists should play vocally. Mm. So you just be as vocal as you possibly can, and that means allowing the changes you get from one syllable to the next. So the modern magic seamless legato, where the consonants, if you're singing where the consonants are too subordinate, that takes away a lot of the colour that you get in, in particularly in Baroque, Baroque music and Renaissance too. So I think it's allowing things to change as they would when you speak them. Try and let audible breaths and consonants both come in and rock the boat, actually. Try and let things 
stop being too seamless, <laughs> as it were, because the modern style is magical for the, the, the music that requires it, but it is a bit of a bulldozer. Damon, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. It has been an absolute delight on my end to hear you talk about all of this music. We appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. Well, you're most welcome. And as I say, I'm very admiring of, of your group and looking forward to hearing more of it. <laughs> well, thank you. Most appreciated. Richardson, a soprano with Seraphic Fire, and I'm here today with Josh Cohen. Josh is one of the foremost players of Baroque trumpet in the U.S., and we first met maybe 2012. Yeah, something like that. Around there, and we performed Bach's Cantata 51, Jauchzet Gott in Allen London, at the Cosmos Club in D.C., and since then we've gotten to perform together a number of times. Most recently, we just performed Cantata 51 up in Maine again for a wonderful summer festival in Blue Hill. Thanks for joining us today, Josh. Thanks. Glad to be here. So I had a couple questions in mind. First, I just wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind describing your instrument for people who maybe haven't seen a Baroque trumpet before. I've got it right here. This is a copy of a German Baroque trumpet made in about 1710 by a guy named Koditsch somewhere in Germany. I'm not exactly sure where. I think Nuremberg, I believe. It differs from a modern trumpet in that it doesn't have any valves and it's about twice the length. They didn't invent the valves until the first quarter of the 19th century. Before then, everything was produced with your lips and your ears. In the 1960s, they came out with an idea that if you put little holes on certain parts of the instrument, you can get more notes to be more accurately in tune and not just have to use your lip to change the, some of the pitches that are outside of the natural overtone series. There are examples I've read about that in the day they were experimenting putting these little holes in different parts of the instrument but none of them back then had four i'm lucky enough to have four which makes it a little bit easier to navigate some of the really hard passages in pieces like cantata 51 and b minor mass and cantata 147. so it's a very long instrument does it come apart for travel it can each of these pieces come in half this is called the crook depending on what key you're playing in it's either a bigger or a smaller one of those. The higher the key, the smaller the crook. Mostly I play in the key of D and C. That's probably about 95% of everything I do. The one piece that I play in F a lot is Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2, which is in F. And that's a very short horn. It makes the horn about this big. That piece is one of your specialties, right? I play it. I've played it for about 20 years well. I mean, before then, you know, I didn't play it that well. Um, but I've, I've made it a piece that I play memorized, and I play it actually every day um, as a warm-up. Many trumpet players think I'm a crazy person for doing that, but I figure if you could play one of the most difficult pieces as your warm-up, then everything else should seem easier to do. It doesn't always work out that way, but 
the reason I play it every day is because about maybe five years ago, there was a situation in New York where a group was coming from Europe and they're desperate and they're like, we need a guy to come in like two days to play Brandenburg three times in New York. And since I played every day, I was like, oh good, I get to actually play this with people now. When I'm playing stuff in other keys, I don't often play it then because... That it, makes sense, yeah. It's the only piece and key I use a different mouthpiece but it's a slightly smaller mouthpiece to be able to hit the higher notes with more ease. So when I'm on tour playing somewhere doing not the Brandenburg, I don't usually play Brandenburg then, but when I get back from there, I, I pick it up again, and usually it's okay. You know, you perform a bunch of Messiahs every year. Do you perform both at Baroque Pitch 415 and Modern Pitch 440? And if so, how do you change your instrument for that? Uh, that's a very good question. Most, about 99% of them are at 415. I've done it probably maybe four or five times at 440, but probably over 200 times at 415. But yeah, I do a lot of messiahs. Yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned already um, Cantata 51 and the Brandenburg, but are there any other pieces you feel are the ones you do over and over again or, you, or your favorites to play for whatever reason? Yes, B minor mass. There's a lot of pieces that you can get away with getting a trumpet player that might be good at the Baroque trumpet, but some of those pieces require someone who you know that they can already play it. And B minor mass is one of those pieces because it's so long. I mean, it's very hard. Cantata 51, I, I always feel very bad for you because you're doing all the work. B minor mass is a different scenario because the trumpets are playing all the time and each movement is quite lengthy and it's an endurance thing. When I practice almost everything that I play, I do things in real time. Mm -hmm. So if I have movements that I don't play, I take that time to not play. So I know what it's going to feel like. You perform a lot of trumpet arias also with tenor or bass. Do you feel like that's kind of a different experience for you than with the soprano voice? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about, I knew this question was going to come up and I was thinking about the type of voice and the trumpet that go best together for me are, is with soprano, obviously. You know, and obviously, Bach was a very worldly and God-fearing man, and he took the king of instruments and put it together with an angelic voice. And half the stuff you're talking about is spreading God's love throughout the lands and all this stuff. And, and so it just it makes sense. When I'm doing stuff with bass, it's a much different thing because they've got a... You know, they really have to work to get any fast notes in there that can even match anything that I could do pretty easily on the trumpet. Whereas you can just flutter around in the upper register. Like, out in the stratosphere, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know it's, an, it's like angelic. When I play with bass, it's a much different thing. And usually the, the subject matters are different, too. When you're looking at the tech, they're more um, pomposo and more, not heavenly so much, but raising from the dead more supernatural in nature as opposed to a spiritually celestial stuff. You know, the example that I'm sure comes to mind for many people is the trumpet shall sound from Messiah. And I'd say it's less of a duet of two equal voices and more that the bass is calling on the trumpet to raise the dead. Exactly. Um, the trumpet shall sound, if you do the da capo, is the longest thing that happens. And it's the only piece in that oratorio that has an obligato solo instrument with a voice. That's a moment in Messiah that I always really look forward to. And it, it really is thrilling to hear that 
trumpet just ascending out of nowhere. And I know people in the audience always look forward to that moment. Especially when I get to do it at the cathedral, they have me play on the pulpit, the big pulpit. And I play it from memory because I don't want to knock over a music stand. But the first time I did it, like on maybe 15 or 16 years ago, I got up there and I'm looking out at the audience and I see my parents there in the front row of the cathedral. And then there's 3,000 people as far as you can see. It's quite an experience. I have a question too regarding a lot of box work for trumpets. Like we mentioned the B minor mass. It's not just one trumpet. You have two or even three trumpets playing these kind of arpeggios and chords together and passages. When you're performing with other trumpets, do you have to adjust certain things when you're performing with them as opposed to solo? Absolutely. That's why if I ever get a choice, I usually like to pick players who have like timbre of sound. Okay. Um, and it's, it doesn't always have to do with how good they are technically or even musically, but the timbre of sound is very important to me to have in a section, especially with a second trumpet player. The third trumpet player, most of the time, like 99% of the time, is basically doubling the timpani and is acting like a tonal timpani. The second trumpet player you actually have to blend with and do thirds together and play more florid passages with one another. And you do have to blend. I mean, playing solo trumpet is a lot different than playing in a section. You tend to play louder when you're playing with two other trumpets. And Bach used three trumpets most of the time for a reason. I mean, it's the Trinity thing. But yeah, it is totally different playing with with, uh, other trumpets. You have to blend, but mainly with the second trumpet player. That's pretty amazing how much in common that is to someone putting together a singing ensemble. You want different colors for different types of repertoire, and it really does help to have this wonderful blend between voices. I'll tell you, I mean, I've been playing with Seraphic six or seven years at least, and I play a lot of places, and I have to say that that choir is on the very top rung. It's just the best blending of voices that I've ever gotten to work with. I'm always happy to come back to Seraphic Fire and play. You know, I even went really late at night, and I'm just bored. I'll, I'll listen to some of the concerts that we had recorded in Trinity Church when they went on tour, and did the Charpentier Tadeum and all the four coronation anthems of, of Handel. It's fantastic live playing. It's amazing. Later in the spring, you're also doing Messiah with Seraphic Fire, I believe. Yep. Is that right? And have you done Messiah before with Patrick Quigley? No. The one time I was supposed to do it, I had already booked something well before I was asked, and I could not do it. Now I have my chance. I was so happy when he called and told me, that they're doing it with a modern orchestra, but we'd like to use Baroque trumpet. And I said, great. Well, I think it's going to be a really fantastic experience because I'm sure it'll be more unique take on Messiah having a very kind of intimate Messiah performance. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I did want to ask you too, Cantata 147, that's what we're doing in the Enlightenment Festival. And no, that's also a very challenging solo trumpet part. So can you tell us a little bit about that first movement? Over the last five years, I've gotten to play that piece quite a bit. Um, I've gotten to know it much better. That first movement is just an amazing counterpoint exercise. It's wonderful. I mean, I get to start the theme, and then halfway through the middle, everything changes, and then I get to end the theme, too. I'm the last person who gets to come back in with that bugle section. It's a great piece. And although I don't play it memorized, I have it memorized, but I still use the music for that one because there's so many things that could possibly go wrong. 
Fortunately, it's in C, it's not in D, so it's not quite as high as um, some other things that Bach has written. The interesting part about that is the chorale in that piece. It's written for a slide trumpet, and I don't like that instrument. I specialize in playing a lot of the high notes, and the, the slide trumpet is the opposite. It plays a lot of the low notes in the register that the regular Baroque trumpet can't play some of those notes in tune at that register. Bach, they think that he had a trumpet that you'd hold the mouthpiece where it is and you'd slide the rest of the trumpet back like a trombone. Wow, I played okay. that. I played that one time 20 years ago. I will never play that instrument again. And so what I do when I play it with my regular Baroque trumpet is I, I actually use the holes to help me navigate some of the notes that are not on the trumpet. And I bend them with my lips. So for those of our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with this cantata, that chorale that Josh is talking about is known in English-speaking countries with the tune Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. So it's an absolutely exquisite moment in this cantata. And maybe Bach knew how exquisite it was because he put it in the cantata twice. And then you also have a fabulous aria with the bass, I believe. Yes, it's very heroic sounding. It's a fun piece to play. It's not very long. It's not like trumpet shell sound that goes on for nine minutes. It's very short and sweet, but it is a da capo aria, so you get to, to do some ornamentation towards the end of it. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, you know? But, you know, I like to take risks with ornaments because basically everybody knows, or, or most people know who know Baroque music, that if it's a da capo aria, you're supposed to do something different the second time you do the A section. I will say... The soprano repertoire of Bach, I often find the music is so complex that it's hard to do the same kind of extensive ornamentation you might do in Handel. You know, it, you run the risk of kind of, <laughs> I guess, muddying the waters if you put in larger scale ornaments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. And this has been a really fascinating discussion. I've learned quite a bit about the Baroque trumpet today, even though I've been singing with Baroque trumpet for about 10 years. So I really appreciate you telling us all this fascinating stuff. And we're going to really have a fun time performing a seraphic. Absolutely. We will. Thanks. The second annual installment of Seraphic Fire's Enlightenment Festival, featuring the music of Henry Purcell and Johann Sebastian Bach, runs from February 17th to the 27th, 2022, in venues across South Florida. For more information or to reserve tickets, please visit seraphicfire.org or give us a call at 305-285-9060. That's our show for today. Our guests were Dame Emma Kirkby and Josh Cohen, and Nola Richardson put together today's segment on the Baroque trumpet. The Seraphic Saturday podcast is produced by Alexis Amay. Thomas McCarger is our announcer, and I'm Patrick Quigley, your host. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon in person at a Seraphic Fire show. <laughs> <laughs>